scripture for today's sermon comes from Luke 4, 16 through 21. The word of God speaks to us like this. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, 16 through 21. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Let's do it one more time. How are we doing? Hey, it makes my heart really happy to be with you guys today. I'm so stoked about what Jesus is doing in this community. Uh, if we haven't got to meet yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline. My wife Nancy and I are longtime OKC people, and we got called by Jesus to plant Frontline Church in downtown in 2005. And so I serve as one of the elders in our downtown congregation, and that's kind of my hood. I know that community. And, uh, and then I spend about 50% of my time just getting to love and serve and encourage our other congregations and churches that we plant. And so I'm such a fan, man. Like, for some of you guys, we have relationship and history because you used to be a part of Frontline Downtown and you've been sent here. And for some of you in the coming years, like, I'm going to be that crazy uncle that just comes up once I can and give you a big old hug and tell you how proud I am of you guys. Um, but I want you to know, man, that all of our congregations are behind you. We love you. And what Jesus is doing in this community is really worth being a part of. It's worth being a part of. So I'm going to pray for you, you pray for me, and we're going to dive in and talk about what does it mean to be the body of Christ in the earth. Uh, Father, I just want to thank you for these men and women, and thank you that in this room, though, we don't know all the stories, we don't know all the baggage that our friends brought in, and Lord, ironically, like, sometimes we don't even know how to process what we brought into the room, and yet you, in your gaze, like, you literally see it all. You see it all. You see our fears, our insecurities, you see our hang-ups, you see where we're broken, you see our longings. And uh, the crazy thing is like the, the whole concept of being before the face of God sounds like the worst thing in the world to some of us, and yet it's actually the most liberating thing in the world when we see what Jesus has done, that you see us, but you still want us to be fully known and still loved and still chosen and accepted is like a rare human experience and that's at the very heart of the gospel. So would you speak to my friends today and would you give them the gift of your very presence? Because no matter how hard I try, like my words are insufficient to meet the longing of the human soul, but your word is not. Your word is powerful. And so I pray that you would meet us and form us and help us in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this new sermon series, which really is foundational for who we want to be as a church. We started 
with this premise that, like, there's two questions that every human being has to have answered. They're questions of identity and questions of purpose. And we all want to live a deep life. We want to live a life that's marked with joy. We don't just want to grind out life or reduce ourselves to kind of organic machines that just pay bills. Everybody wants a life that's beautiful. And in the midst of our cultural moment, we lack the capacity to answer two questions that a beautiful, a beautiful life demands answers for. And the two questions are the question of identity. Who am I? Like, who am I at the very core of my being? What is it that makes me me? And the second question is the question of purpose. Why am I here? Like, what's life for? And how is my life going to actually contribute to something that's worth doing in a world where people are questioning, like, what's the meaning of all this? And so what we said a couple of weeks ago is that at the heart of the Christian claim of Jesus or the good news of the gospel is an answer to those two questions. And what we said a couple of weeks ago is that real transformation, now there's a lot of other forms of change that people in the Bible Belt settle for, like religion is one form of change, morality is one form of change, being really disciplined, having a great schedule, getting life coaching, hacks and tips for how to tweak your performance, like all of those are forms of change, but if you really want to get into the kind of change that's called transformation, like inside out, your heart being renovated, a life that you live because something has shifted in a profound way, like that kind of change requires that you encounter yourself in light of the good news of Jesus. And when you see yourself through the lens of Jesus' work, like if you were to behold yourself in the eyes of your heavenly father through the work of his son, what you would find would be the one thing in this world that has the power to blow up your shame, to remove your guilt, to actually set you free from your compulsions. Like if you could see the face of your father in heaven through the work of Jesus and hear the word that he speaks over you, I'm telling you, everything would be different. And what happens in scripture when we think about this thing called the church is that God doesn't start with all the things that we're supposed to do as the church. We are to do things in the world, amen? Like we're to care for the poor, we're to work for the justice of God, we're to actually love each other and serve our neighbors. And all those things are good and true, but where the Bible starts in its theology of the church or its ecclesiology is actually in the very core essence of how God sees his people through the work of Jesus. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at this picture of the church called the bride of Christ, which is really a reframing of the cosmos, of the universe itself, not around cold, dark emptiness, but around a love story, that God actually loves you, that he longs for you that he sees you, that he won't settle for distance and to close the gap between you and him that you couldn't close and that religion can't close, God closed the gap by taking on flesh and dying in our place for our sins. Today we get to talk about the next metaphor which also frames your identity and it frames your purpose. And that's that we, as followers of Jesus, become the body of Christ, the body of Christ. I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Um, when you think of a podunk town, what town do you think of? Right, what town do you think of? Um, when I think of podunk towns, I think of the town that I spent summers growing up, which was Afton, Oklahoma. 
don't know if you've ever driven through Afton, Oklahoma. There's not much to see there. My grandparents lived in Afton. My granddad was a rancher. And I would spend summer vacation from Southern California going to Afton, Oklahoma. And I didn't love it as a young man. Right? And the funny thing about small podunk towns is that a lot of small podunk towns, like, they compare themselves to, like, the next tier town. So if you grew up in Afton, Oklahoma, the city was Miami, Oklahoma. And if you lived in Miami, and it's not Miami, it's Miami. If you lived in Miami, Oklahoma, then you were like, oh, those Afton people, man, they are country. Country folk. And the reason I say all that is because the whole story of Jesus, his work and his ministry didn't start in some urban center. And big cities have their place, and there's things about big cities that are cool. But the work of God to reform and to remake all of creation didn't start in New York or Los Angeles or Paris or even Rome or Athens, the work of God to renovate the world started in a podunk town called Nazareth. And in that little town that was considered flyover country in the ancient world, like it wasn't where you went to school, it wasn't a center of culture or learning, in little Nazareth, there was this local boy named Jesus who was a carpenter. And everybody assumed that they knew him. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. He's a blue-collar guy. He's a guy that can fix your farm equipment. He's a guy that's handy to have around. He can repair your roof. And one day, in this little podunk town, Jesus' hometown, this local kid, Jesus, goes to a synagogue, which was a Jewish center of religion and culture in the midst of the Roman world, and Jesus finds this ancient writing, this book of the prophet Isaiah. It was written almost... 800 years before Jesus was born, and with his calloused hands, which I love picturing this, these are not like seminarian hands, these are not soft pastor hands, with calloused rough fingers, Jesus opens up the scroll, and he frames his earthly ministry with the words that Cindy just read to us. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads from Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolls up the scroll and he sits down and in like a drop the mic moment that shocked everybody, this carpenter named Jesus says, hey guys, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They had heard people teach this scripture before. It wasn't news to them that that was a part of their canon of scripture in the Old Testament, but they had never had a teacher, let alone a teacher who also was a carpenter and not a professional religious guy, claim that that scripture was fulfilled because he was there. And what happened next, whether you're an atheist or an agnostic or a Christian, undeniably changed the course of human civilization. In just three years, without traveling very far from that hometown pre-Twitter, pre-industrialized revolution, pre-printing press, with the inability to get on an airplane and go all over the world and do a tour, this guy Jesus brings the ministry of presence to regular people in local places through touch and hearing and speech. He sees people like nobody's ever seen people. Like he meets this woman at a well And this is a woman who had an entire history of just brokenness and abandonment. She's been used by guys. She's trading her relationship for rent. And in their 
particular cultural moment, she was a lady that had no claims on the God of Israel. That's what she had been taught. She was outside of the Jewish nation. She was a Samaritan, which was basically looked down upon as like this crazy cult of people. And this lady who had no hope in the world, Jesus looks at her, and what he actually sees is not her track record of sin that defines her, but he sees the thirst and hunger underneath that sin, and he says, hey, I'm the answer to what you're thirsty for. And he treats her with dignity and respect. Jesus touches people in a way that they had never been touched. People that were unclean and sick, he touches them, and instead of Jesus getting sick or unclean, they become clean and healed. He eats with tax collectors who were traitors to their fellow Jews. Like, they were literally fleecing their neighbors to give money to the Roman occupying powers. They were the most hated people in the land. Jesus breaks bread with them. He eats with prostitutes. He wigs out the religious leaders by being friends with people like that. And in his friendship with those people, something crazy happens. The burning heart for holiness gets ignited in their chest. Their identities get changed. God does something in this man, Jesus, that's profound. And for those three years of teaching and preaching and healing and proclaiming forgiveness of sins, what you see is nothing short than the presence of the living God being seen and felt and heard in the lives of human beings. And after three years of that ministry, Jesus is hung on a Roman cross, and his friends think, oh my goodness, we hope that he was the one that was going to deliver Israel. Our hopes are dashed. Jesus is dead. And then, in a moment that marks Christianity, not as a philosophy and not as just another religion, in a moment that marks Christianity as a faith rooted in history, Jesus comes back from the dead appears to 500 people at one time. His disciples that were terrified are transformed by encountering Jesus. And you sort of think in that moment, oh my goodness, this man Jesus is about to go to the next level in bringing his presence to the world. It's not just gonna be Judea, this tiny little geographical area that's not really that important. Surely Jesus is gonna do his world tour. He's gonna go to Rome. He's gonna go to Athens. Maybe he's gonna head up north and meet with the Germanic tribes, the barbarians. Maybe he's going to go to Asia and speak the good news of his presence to all the people living in what one day will be China. And instead, in a moment that's kind of frustrating and baffling, Jesus ascends back into heaven. And you're kind of left, if you just read the Gospels, you're kind of left thinking like, oh, Jesus, like, not yet. Like, where are you going we need you. What about the people that haven't heard of the love of God that you've manifested? What about the people that are still sick and broken? What about all the women at the wells in other nations? And something crazy happens. Jesus tells his disciples that they're to wait in Jerusalem because they're going to be filled with power to then go and be his very body, his hands, and his feet in the world. Now listen, when we talk about the church as the body of Christ, if you've been raised in church, most sermons about the body of Christ are all about volunteer recruitment, right? Like, let's just be honest about that. We're the body of Christ, serving the nursery. And like, kinda, kinda, like, yeah, we're the body of Christ. Find somewhere to help. But at the very heart of this metaphor that we are the body of Christ, here's what God's telling us. Jesus' ministry of presence 
is not over. It's continuing through his spirit-filled church. Exactly what Jesus did in Nazareth, in Samaria, in Judea, in Jerusalem, is what Jesus wants to do in Yukon, in Piedmont, in Bethany, in El Reno. The way that Jesus moved towards people that were broken and without hope, outside of being accepted in religion, is the way that Jesus wants to move towards people today. He wants to do that through his people, the church. So here's what I want to do. Um, Two things. Next week, I want us to have a conversation about how do we participate in the ongoing ministry of Jesus. Like, what's his vision for the church between Sundays? What's his vision for loving and engaging the needs of this community? But today, I want to start at the foundation. Before we get there, I want to talk about the very essence of being his body. Like, what does that mean, man? Like, what does that mean for you as an individual and for you as a part of this? And if you're coming back to church after a hiatus or you've never been in church, or you don't know what you believe, this metaphor of the body actually is a profound invitation for you to encounter the presence of Jesus yourself before you try to extend the presence of Jesus. So I'm going to give you two things today, two things, and we're going to try to trace them out quickly. The first thing is that this picture of us being the body shows us Jesus' union with us and our union with him. To say that we're the body is to say that there's been a joining between Jesus and his people that's an intimate joining that can be described as the head and the body or a husband and a wife. There's a oneness. There's a connectivity. There's not a distance between us and Jesus that's cold and aloof. To be the body of Christ is to be joined to him and for him to be joined to you. There was this guy named Saul You probably have heard his story. He later would become a leader in the early church. His name would be changed to Paul. Before his name was changed, he was on a donkey going to a town to terrorize Christians. He wanted to put them in jail. He wanted to kill some. And Jesus shows up and interrupts that journey in the book of Acts. And Jesus says something crazy to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? track with me because this is not just ancient history this is really relevant for who you are in this room like what Jesus is saying is that he so is connected he so identifies with his people that when Saul actually beats them with rods it's Jesus that's being beaten if Saul separates husbands and wives and moms and dads from their families and throws them in jail it's Jesus that's being thrown in jail If he kills some, it's Christ that's being killed. The bodies of Christians that suffer is the body of Jesus that suffers, and the soul of Christians that suffer is the soul of Jesus that suffers. The Apostle Paul is going to tell Christians later that we're to weep with those who weep. And he actually got that directly from Jesus, that the tears of the church are the tears of Jesus. And that's not just true for the church, capital C, that's actually true for every Christian that's put their trust in Jesus. Like, can we just be honest? When you go through profound suffering, it feels like maybe the deists are right. If you've ever read the deists, guys like Ben Franklin, they basically said, hey, we can't deny that there's a God because his fingerprints on creation show that there is intelligent design here, right? Like, whether you're 
sort of a creation evolutionist or you believe in six-day creation, what we all have in common is like God's fingerprints are all over the place. And what the deists actually taught was that there is a creator, but he's like an absentee landlord. He created the world, and then he created the laws that govern the material world, and then he backed up and basically said, hey, good luck, and he left it all to entropy to wind down. And listen, when your marriage is terrible, it feels like God's not very present. And when your kids get sick, it feels like God doesn't see you. And when you got areas in your life that are deeply personal that other people can't see, like it's one thing to have a broken body and people kind of can give you some patience because they see that you're limping or you're hurting or you have a diagnosis. But what about when your heart's messed up? Like what about when you're anxious or depressed and you don't even know how to let people into that? And when you feel like that, when it feels like the world's crushing you, you can start to feel like maybe the deists are right. I can't deny the presence of a God or the reality of a God. He just doesn't feel very close. And it doesn't feel like my prayers get very high. And what this metaphor of the body actually shows you is that there's never been a tear that you've cried if your faith is in Jesus that Jesus wasn't actually intimately connected in. There's never been a sense of absence from the presence of God that Christ wasn't actually present in. He sees you and he feels you and he loves you. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 5. This is this great text about marriage and husbands and wives. Uh, John talked about it last week. It's not just about sort of domestic partnerships. It's about the mystery of marriage, right? Here's what Paul says. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. But listen, he nourishes and cherishes it. You take care of your body, right? You nourish, you cherish your body. But he goes on to say, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So get this, like when marriage is right, and when a husband actually is cherishing his wife, her gifts and her calling, and he's treating his wife with like the dignity that she deserves, and he's for her, and he's her friend, he's actually cherishing and nourishing her like he would take care of his own body, and all of that points to a deeper reality that Christ is so committed to his body, the church, that he nourishes and provides for his church with such a deep concern and care that he gives her everything that she needs to thrive and flourish. Um, my wife and I celebrated our 22nd anniversary this month, and uh, like you should, if you if you meet my wife, you should like congratulate her on her perseverance. I'm, <laughs> dude, I'm so difficult to be married to. I'm so weird and high maintenance and my wife's gone back to school because our kids are older became a rn and uh i'm good for like one 12 hour shift but after like three i'm the mopiest poutiest big baby like i'm just a hot mess and um we've been married 22 years which is like a testimony to her resolve and godliness and in the early days when we got married super young, and by the way, one way that you know you're getting married too young is if you plan your honeymoon around countries where you can drink beer and not be 21. Like, <laughs> you're, you're probably not ready for marriage. That was us. Um, I moved her into my apartment, and I literally, I had, <laughs> here was the furnishing in my apartment. It was a mattress on the floor, an Olympic weight bench in the dining room, and one punk rock poster on the wall. Welcome to my home. 
And in those early days of marriage, the thing that was so crazy was even in all of our immaturity, feeling this ownership that's not an objectification. Are you tracking with that? Like an ownership that's not looking at your spouse as a possession or an object, but an ownership where you say with the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. To feel that knitting together and that ownership that happens in the covenant of marriage, like that is all about Jesus and his people. So listen, the first thing I want to say is if you're in Christ, Jesus looks at you and says, you are my beloved and I am yours. You're his inheritance and he's your inheritance. And if we stop there, that would be a really great sermon because we could say Jesus is really good and we get to love and serve Jesus. The problem is this body metaphor also tells us that you're not just a part of Jesus, you're a part of each other. And that's where it gets hectic, right? Our union with Jesus and our union with, his union with us and our union with him leads to our union with one another and that's where things get messy and painful. Let me flesh out just a few things for you to think about. Our union with each other means that we're connected and unified with the rest of the body and we've been commanded to maintain that unity. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Meaning we don't have to create unity, we have to maintain it. Now listen, this is really important for the beginnings of this church plant. We love the Lord's Supper as a church. That's this ordinance that Jesus gave us. It's driving me crazy that in the midst of this pandemic we're not doing the Lord's Supper right now. I want to do the Lord's Supper as soon as possible. We think it's a command of Jesus to do as often as possible. It's something that we receive in faith and receive fresh grace as we eat that meal. It's beautiful. And it's so important to Christians that that bread represents the body of Jesus and the wine represents the blood of Jesus, that if somebody was to come in here and grab the bread and throw it on the ground and stomp on it, most of us would be like, hey, that is so disrespectful. You're desecrating a symbol of our Savior's body that was crushed for us, right? If somebody took the cups that we use for the communion wine and spit in one of those cups or dumped the cup on the ground, we'd be like, hey, man, like that actually is important to us. That's a symbol of the blood of Jesus. But here's what it means to be joined to one another in a more profound, in a more profound way than that body symbolizing and reminding us of Jesus in an even more real way Looking around this room, the way we treat each other is the way we treat the body of Jesus. Hey, when we are quick to judge each other and gossip about each other, we're judging Jesus' body. When we write each other off, we're writing off his body. And on the other side of that equation, every kindness done in this church as we begin this process every time you share with one in need, every time you see somebody, not just as an obstacle to what you want, but as a human being that's to be known and loved and treated with kindness and mercy, you're doing that to the body of Jesus. And as we learn to take care of each other, one of the greatest ways that we worship Jesus is by treating one another like we would treat Jesus. That's dealing with our offenses, squashing our beefs, and in this particular political moment, okay, this is where I got to lean into this a little bit. 
our world in the West is becoming increasingly polarized, increasingly hostile. I'm not saying you shouldn't be on social media, but I am saying it's probably not good for your soul. The level of vitriol, the level of animosity, the virtue signaling, the outrage, we're polarized left and right in our country. We're also becoming increasingly polarized between white collar and blue collar, between men and women, between different ethnicities. And listen, one of the things about the church since the very beginning is that we bear witness to the world of the resurrection of Jesus, not by finding people that look exactly like us or at the exact same place on the political spectrum, One of the ways that we reflect the glory of Jesus has always been that Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the wealthy and the poor, people from all different backgrounds get thrown into community, and as we love and serve each other, even in the midst of our differences, we point to the fact that Jesus is what brought us together. I want to charge you, in the name of Jesus, to maintain the unity of this church from the very beginning, to love each other. Hey, listen, it would be a great testimony to the grace of God to have tons of people that are on the right wearing their MAGA hats in our church and tons of progressives in our church that disagree about everything but Jesus being a part of Frontline Yukon. It would be a real blessing if we could be a church that lets the social media drama fall away that actually move towards each other and honor each other and respect each other. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we don't have debate and disagreement. We can have that as Christians. But it means in the midst of debate and disagreement, we love each other. We're joined to each other. It also means that we can't grow up without each other. Just me and Jesus' spirituality is immature spirituality. We need the church. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 as well, that speaking the truth in love were to grow up in every way into Christ. Our connection, our joining, our proper working makes the body work and grow. So listen, like if you want to grow up as a Christian, stay rooted in a body of believers that's imperfect and actually do life together. If you want to hinder your growth, every time you get offended or bent out of shape, just bounce from church to church. You're guaranteed to be immature in 15 years. But when we plant our lives and get to know each other and use our gifts to serve each other, there's an invitation to growth. Lastly, this reminder of the body is a picture that we need each other in the midst of all of our diverse gifts. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul uses the metaphor of the body and says, hey, it would be absurd if the ear said that it didn't need the eye. That would be weird. It would be crazy if the hand said that it didn't need the mouth. That would be strange. And in the church, there's all kinds of different gifts. There's different ages. There's people that are gifted prophetically. There's people that are teachers. There's people with the gift of mercy. And at the heart of the church is not activism or one particular ministry. At the heart of the church is Jesus, which means that all these different age groups and gifts and men and women and elders and lay members of the church all get connected together to love and to serve and to grow. So as we close this today, Um, here's the crazy, the crazy reality is that we don't have to make this church the body of Christ. Like, that's the truth. We don't have to strategize how can we make Frontline Yukon be the body of Christ. She just is. She just is. What we do have to do 
is cultivate in our relationships an awareness that we need each other and that there is no true spirituality that says, I love Jesus, but I don't need his body. Jesus loves you enough to place you in a body of believers and to connect us so that we can care for each other and meet each other's needs.